Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. About myself, uh, I'm part of the team here at Red Door Church, uh, and what I do is that I work for uh, this uh, ministry called Campus Outreach, um, and as you know, what we do is that we do uh, ministry reaching out to students uh, through evangelism and discipleship on the university campus uh, in Pretoria. Uh, and uh, I am a man who is going to be married for a year in, on Friday uh, to this amazing woman called Guanyi, uh, which, uh, which uh, I must say uh, is also the day that Megan and Jason get married. Uh, so... So, uh, hashtag anniversary buddies, woo! <laughs> Alright, uh, so uh, that's just me by way of introduction, a bit about what I do, and also about my family. Um, and yeah, so we are currently in a series, a uh, sermon series called The Seven Deadly Sins. And um, what we've discussed so far over the past four weeks is greed, lust, gluttony, and sloth. And so if you'd like to catch up or hear a bit more about what we discussed on these, feel free to go on our website, redochurch.co.za, and you can be able to catch up on some of these uh, sermons. And so today I'll be preaching on pride. Um, And if we're being honest, uh, this is something that we all struggle with in some way, shape, or form. Uh, Even in in, in preparing uh, this sermon, I must say, It was a difficult week because in many ways it felt like I was having to stand in the mirror and write the most honest autobiography about myself because the reality is that, you know, pride is so evident in our lives, whether it's overt or whether it's subtle. Uh, And so I give much credit uh, to my wife in just helping me to be able to bring together the sermon and be able to figure out what's a, a, a way in which uh, we can communicate this or communicate uh, how to understand pride from a biblical perspective, but also what is the counter virtue to pride. And so before we get into it, uh, let me open for us in prayer and just ask that the Lord, the Lord would uh, work in our hearts. And so Heavenly Father, we are grateful for this opportunity um, that uh, today we get to gather together um, as a church um, and as we uh, get to hear you uh, speak to us uh, from your word uh, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord, we ask that uh, indeed you would prepare our hearts and soften our hearts, Lord. Um, Pride is uh, often uh, one of those things that uh, we typically uh, want to shy away from or uh, sometimes uh, want to easily point out in others. But Lord, we are thankful for your word and how you point us uh, to the truth uh, and how, Lord, you call us to humility and how ultimate humility, Lord, is found in you and how you, Lord Jesus, are the perfect example for that. And so, Lord, my prayer uh, for us this morning um, is that, Lord, even as I speak, Lord, may I merely serve as a mouthpiece um, unto you, Lord. May it be all about you and less and less uh, about myself or ourselves, Lord. May we indeed uh, gaze upon your majesty and glory and just seek to worship you with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And so we pray all these things in your name. Amen. 
And so, uh, pride is such an elusive sin because it's not always a sin that can be overtly seen, but it also can be a very subtle sin that's in our hearts to an extent where we can deem certain elements of our pride as acceptable sins. You know, it's, you know we, we, we can sometimes feel like, well, yeah, sure, that's pride, but not really. You know, it's like, yeah, everyone does that, so it's not really a big issue. And so I, as, as we journey through to today's passage, uh, my hope is that we can be able to not only try to understand how does the world view or understand pride, but then also be able to develop a biblical framework of what pride actually is, but then from there be able to go on and try to establish, okay, then what are some of the biblical virtues or what is the counter virtue to pride? The reality is that we're experts at identifying the pride in others, but typically blind to our own. And it's this blindness that makes pride so deadly to us because it builds up the love or the acceptance of sin in our lives, even to the point that our view of God is so distorted because we think that we can begin to bargain with God. We begin to think that I get to set the standards of my own life and I just bring God into the picture whenever I want to. Instead of God sitting on the rightful throne of our hearts, what we do is that we put him aside and we say, Lord, I am king of my heart. And hey, I'll call you every now and then. You, know, you can be you know, my number two. And so if this is what pride does and this is how deadly it is to us, then why is it that it's so prevalent in our hearts? Why is it that it's so prevalent in the world that we live in. And so maybe let's look at how does the world understand or view pride. And so what I simply did was I went to the Oxford Dictionary and I looked up how is pride defined. And so I'll read through a couple of these definitions. And so the Oxford Dictionary defines pride as a feeling of deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one's own achievements. The achievement of those uh, whom one is closely associated with or from qualities or positions widely admired. And so even a simple example uh, about this definition of pride is how uh, typically, uh, I, I think this is common in most cultures, but I've seen this a lot uh, in black and Indian cultures where parents, men, they will be so proud of their children uh, that they will beat their chests about any and every achievement that their children have. Uh, it, if, if anything, uh, sometimes it can feel like a competition. Uh, it can feel like, hey, let me go tell my neighbor the distinctions my child got. And then the neighbor's like, okay, let me show her. I'll tell my neighbor about the car that my child bought. And, then, and so you see that there's this element of you know, our, our parents being happy about our achievements but at the same time, it builds up or feeds into the sense of, uh, you know, I, I need to outdo the next person. I need to outdo my neighbor. I need to prove that I'm better. I need to prove that my child is better. I need to prove X, Y, and Z. But according to this definition, we can see that pride is synonymous with the sense of pleasure, fulfillment, joy, and delight. And so essentially, there's a positive association to pride. 
And then this next definition reads as follows. Pride is the quality of having an excessive high opinion of oneself or one's importance. This understanding of pride is synonymous with arrogance, self-admiration, and egotism. And so, as, a, as an example, I'll use myself. Uh, typically, when I go to play soccer uh, every Friday afternoon or every Monday night, when I come back home, uh, my wife will ask me, so how did it go? Me, me being the professional, ex-professional that I am, I killed it, you know. Uh, you know, I, I did no wrong, you know. I was the best. No one could beat me. I'm untouchable. And, and you know, that, that's my typical response. You know, there, there's a sense of, of arrogance. There's a sense of ego. Uh, number one, because, you know, in my head or in my heart, I, tell, I look at everyone else on the pitch and I think, yeah, no, I'm better than him. You know, it's like, you know, and sometimes even to the extent where how I talk about other players on the pitch as well, I'll talk in such a way in which I look down upon them. As I receive the ball, I'm like, no, 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 pass me. He's nothing. Don't worry. You know, he won't be able to get to me. And so there's a sense of arrogance. There's a sense of ego that oozes out of my own heart. And so according to this definition, then we can see that according to the world, there's also a negative association of pride. And so that's what is evident from these definitions and examples is that pride has positive and negative expressions. And so the question now is, are there really two sides to pride? Is there a positive expression? Is there a negative one? Or is all pride bad? And so, as we journey through today's passage, hopefully we'll be able to unpack a biblical understanding of pride and its implications, how the gospel speaks into pride, and look at the counter-virtue to pursue in light of the truth and power of the gospel. And so, please turn to me uh, to Luke 18, 9-12, as we look at how pride plagues our hearts. And so, it reads as follows, verse 9-12. to he also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves, that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, I give tithes of all that I get. And so in this passage, Jesus is giving this parable and showing a contrast of the prayer, the prayer of a Pharisee and the prayer of a text collector, and how in the end, which of these prayers are deemed as acceptable before God. And so Pharisees and text collectors were on opposite ends of society in that time. If you look at a Pharisee, they were regarded as the most holy of holy. You know. If you looked at a text collector, they were regarded as the worst of the worst. A similar picture in our day and age would be like seeing a pastor and someone who's a drug dealer, a well-known drug dealer or a well-known gangster, walking into a church. Looking from the outside, it's easy to make the assumption that, ah, no, the pastor, he's definitely, he's got it all figured out. He, you know, he's the holy one. 
And then what we, could, we would do with the, with the gangster or drug dealer, we, we are very quick to write them off and say, ah, they're too far gone. That's it. It's done for them. And so Jesus Christ is intentionally using this example to show even how our own biases, you know, tend to mislead us. And so the section of the passage highlights how pride plagues the heart of the Pharisee. And most likely, this is also how pride affects us as well. And we may look at this and think, at least I'm not like the Pharisee, or I'm not as bad as this Pharisee, or you look at this Pharisee and you think, that can never be me. But I would argue against that. Um, And here's why. So Jerry Bridges highlights three types of pride that we are prone to give into in his book called Respectable Sins. And so I want to begin and touch on the the pride of moral self-righteousness. And so when you look at verse 11 and how the Pharisees speak, saying, standing by himself, this is how he prayed, he said, God, I thank you that I am not like the other men extortioners, unjust, adulterers, and even like this tax collector. So this type of pride expresses itself in feeling moral superiority to others, feeling like that you hold the moral high ground because your actions or choices are better than others. So there's so many easy sins that we can point out in our society that we feel like, because I don't do, therefore I am better. It's so easy to look at sexual immorality in our society. It's so easy to look at racism in our society. Look at abortion, look at corruption, look at drunkenness, and think to yourself that I don't partake in those things, and therefore I am better. Or therefore, hey, I, I, I have it all figured out. We have this, this moral superiority where we look down on those whom we regard as the worst of the worst sinners and look at ourselves and think, well, I'm, I'm, I'm not so bad. But when we do this, we are trusting in our own righteousness and treat others with contempt, as verse 9 points out. The reality is that no one is morally upright. Romans 3.23 reminds us of this. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None of us can claim to be morally upright. Yesterday at the conference that we had, Zwei pointed out how we are like professional sinners. If, if we went to the school of sin, all of us here are experts at such a level that we probably all have PhDs. We're so, so good at sinning. We're so good at hiding it. We're so good at concealing it. We're so good at eluding even our own self into thinking that, man, I'm really not that bad. So it cannot be by our own merit, by our own merit, that we live more upright lives. But it is by God's grace that has prevailed through Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live or pursue a morally upright life. And so the next thing is religious pride. And verse 12 points to this. 
Religious pride is a pride in our belief system or that your belief makes you spiritually superior to others or that others are theologically inferior. If there's one thing that we see throughout the scriptures, or at least in the New Testament about the Pharisees, is that as much as they wanted to uphold Moses, the, the law that Moses gave, they went to that extent of feeling like, man, I need to add on to, we need to add on to more of these laws in order to gain more merit or favor with the Lord, but also to prove to those around us how righteous we are. And so they, the, the, Pharisees, the Pharisees typically had this attitude of feeling like we are the cream of the crop. All these other Jews, they are not like us. And guess what? That plagues our hearts, even as Christians in this room. It's so easy for us to uh, you know, point at other churches or point at other religions or point at other faiths and say, well, we have it all figured out. We have all the answers. We are superior and they are lesser. And so there's, there's this religious pride that makes us feel like, man, God really did the right thing by picking me because you know what? Yeah, if I was on another team, then yeah, I know. You know, they would have felt it. And so the reality is that we cannot have this posture where we seek to have this religious pride that makes us feel like, we have it all figured out. Because we don't. And that's why grace in the gospel is so important. And the last one is the pride of achievement. Verse 12 also points to this. Typically, our intellect, natural skills, abilities, health, or opportunities to succeed all come from God. The Pharisees speak so loudly about how often he fasts and how much he tithes, tithing everything as if all of this is done by his own strength. We too give in to the sin, either overtly or more subtle, or in more subtle ways, in which we want to be proud, but we don't want to appear to be. In both cases, we fail to acknowledge that the success we receive or have is from God. This type of pride often leads to a sinful desire of recognition. I want to be recognized. I want to be seen for what I have done. And if I'm not seen, if I'm not recognized, then is it even worth it? It even leads to a point where we are even unteachable. Because there's a sense of us having this independent spirit. It's like, you can't tell me. I have my PhD in X, Y, and Z. I've played soccer for an X amount of years. I've been a makeup artist for an X amount of years. I can do a face beat in three minutes. See how easy it is? And so now from this passage, we can see how the main problem with pride is that we can see it in others, but not in ourselves. We do this in order to hide or justify our own sin, to say, at least I'm not like him or her. 
We weigh our righteousness by comparing ourselves to others. We create the spiritual CV that we think that one day I can pull out and be like, God, look. Look at all of these things that I did. And sometimes not even wanting to present it to God, but to other Christians and say that, hey, guys, hey, ladies, I'm, I'm, I'm not so bad. You know, if, if anything, I've, I've, I've got it all together. And so please quickly turn with me to Matthew 7, 1 to 5. And Matthew 7, 1 to 5 reads as follows. Judge not that you may not be judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye and do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. This passage intentionally uses this exaggerated example in order to point out how easy it is for us to downplay our own sin. And don't get me wrong. In this passage, Jesus is not forbidding all evaluation or judgment of others. However, Jesus is pointing out that only the person who feels grieved and humbled over his or her own sin, is able to remove the speck from another's eye. And so the clear counter-virtue to pride is humility. As we consider, then yes, pride plagues our hearts. But then what should be the response? What should be a way in which we strive to live our lives? Humility. Humility is the counter virtue to pride. And so let's look at Luke 9, 13 to 14. As we look at the gospel and humility and how that plays out. Jesus Christ is the ultimate standard for biblical humility. What he said and how he lived should serve as our definitive guide on how we live our lives and humble ourselves before God. In this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, he made it clear that true humility, true humility means utter dependence upon the mercy of God. True humility means not 90% dependence, not 50% dependence, not 99.99 dependence, but full 100% utter dependence upon the mercy of God. And we see this pointed out as we read in verse 13 to 14. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. 
And so look at the contrast in the posture of the Pharisee to the tax collector in how they pray, in what they say. The tax collector recognizes how sin deeply plagues his heart, makes him poor in spirit, and leads to this far separation from God. He could not even lift his eyes to the heavens. Looking upward is a very typical thing, not only back then, but even somewhat today uh, when we pray. But he was so conscious of his own unworthiness to this that he simply asked for God to be merciful to him and acknowledges his sin. He recognizes that I am broken and fallen and in and of myself, I can present nothing before the Lord. And as a result, let me turn to the Lord as I am. He did not have to figure himself out. He did not have to clean himself up in any way. But recognize that, man, God's grace is so good and is so sufficient that I can come to him and turn to the Lord as I am. And so how can God be merciful to this man? By turning away his wrath through the turning sacrifice that Jesus Christ did for us. Jesus is the ultimate example of biblical humility. Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality... Uh, uh, sorry, let me read that again. Philippians 2, 6-8 says, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. What we see here is that to be humble is to be aware of our own sin and unworthiness and to cast ourselves entirely upon the mercy and undeserved kindness of our Lord. Almighty. As we pursue this counter virtue of humility, it means that as the Lord looks at our lives, we ought to have and live in humble posture that the text collector points out by worshiping the Lord in humility being self-aware of the sin in our hearts and repenting before the Lord, recognizing God's grace in our lives over all the things that he does and has given to us and growing in love and compassion for those around us. And the reality is that we are sinners. We do fall short. A lot of these deadly sins, these seven deadly sins, will continue to plague our hearts and our lives in various ways. But there is so much grace in the gospel. There is so much grace that God has to offer us. There is this free gift of salvation that we get to enjoy. We no longer have to be slaves to sin, but may we turn to the Lord recognizing how we have been set free. And so, yes, pride plagues our heart, but guess what? God is there calling us and saying, 
come as you are. Grow in having this posture of humility, recognizing that we don't have it as figured out as we think we do. We're not as better or as great as we think we are. But guess what? By God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, we can still pursue living lives in which we seek to honor the Lord, in which we seek to have less and less pride and more and more humility. And so in closing, it's so easy for pride to consume, my, to consume our hearts. But in Christ, there is so much freedom, no longer having to be slaves to sin. But in him, we are counted as righteous before God. And because of this great gift of salvation, we are able to pursue God. We are able to humble ourselves before him. We are able to love others and serve others, seeking not the glory for ourselves, but giving all the glory to God. How freeing is that? That every single day in my life, I don't have to try to meet certain standards for someone else in order to appease myself or anybody else or prove anything to anyone. I get the freedom and the joy to get to live, to glorify, and to honor God in all that I do and to do each and every single thing for Him. In the big stuff and in the small stuff in our lives, there is such a massive and great opportunity for us to enjoy worshiping and praising and glorifying God. And so I'll close in reading Isaiah 66 too. And God says, But this is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. So Radio Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we are thankful um, for the power of your gospel uh, in that we can turn to you and come to you as we are. The reality is that, yes, um, we have fallen short. Um, we are sinners. But by your love, your great mercy, you have chosen to sin, and you chose to send your son to be the perfect and ultimate sacrifice that in and through him we get the opportunity to enjoy and receive eternal life and enjoy being in relationship with you. We no longer have to be plagued by the sin in our lives and in our hearts, but we can turn to you. We can humble ourselves before you, recognizing indeed how much we need you daily in our lives. Lord, help us to grow in humility in our lives. I typically fall short in this area so often. We do so often. And so, Lord, as a community, Lord, may, may, the, may humility be something that we seek to live out in our lives, but also encourage one another in. Heavenly Father, help us indeed to live lives where we seek to have you at the center. Have you sit at your rightful throne and be the king of our hearts. May we let you indeed be Lord over all. And may we seek to glorify you in all things, finding pleasure, joy, and delight in that. And so we pray and we ask all these things in your mighty and precious name. Amen.